Faraz, I don't want to come at you too hot, but I was listening to one of our earlier episodes and you mentioned something about YouTube and their recommendation algorithms. And I'm sure you know that YouTube is one of my favorite sort of platforms. I love watching stuff on there. You suggested that maybe uh, their recommendation algorithms are so strong, they've become too engaging and they sort of trap you within your own point of view. If, for example, you're watching like political stuff, you end up just hearing the same political stuff over and over again. You never get the other point of view, which I can probably agree to. But you also suggested that maybe we need to revert back to a time where they weren't as strong. Do you still feel that way? I think almost all pieces of software are too engaging at this point. I mean, there was a time, so there was a time in college where I, I, my iPhone broke. So instead of getting a new iPhone, I actually got a flip phone from the 90s because I just found like I'm spending way too much time browsing on Safari, all these notifications, like I get, I get texts and they get sucked into this like smartphone vortex and all of the things I was planning to do that day are gone. My attention span is shot. I think like broadly speaking, I mean, social media, YouTube, Reddit, like all of these things have become so compelling and so addictive that they have greatly hindered our ability to lead productive lives. So how was that experience where we're living with the flip phone? Terrible. Yeah, I, that's what I thought. <laughs> no, I mean, that's what I discovered. Like you can't disengage. It, it, it's a very challenging, it's a very challenging thing. You can't completely disengage from society. I mean, right. our society requires these modern technologies. So finding this balance between living in the modern world and benefiting from the, the new tech that's come out without being addicted to it, which is really hard because there are really, really smart people who have spent billions of dollars trying to make you addicted to their product. I don't know. It's a very tough balance to strike. Most people I know can't find it. Many times I can't find it either. Right. And I, you know, I actually can agree with that, which is <clears throat> you basically have an entire workforce whose, whose salary, their promotions, their livelihood is dependent on you using their software or having your eyes on their particular application for right. a minute longer than you did last week. And when, when you have so many incentives tied to somebody's like entire livelihood, I, I mean, I'm not going to win. I'm not going to win that battle. Right. Um, so I'm only, man. <laughs> I'm only a man against uh, <laughs> compensation, which, which I think is a great segue into what, what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to What Can You Tell Me About Software. Our guest today is Zahir Mohiadeen. Zahir is the co-founder of a startup called Levels.FYI, whose mission is to help people make better career decisions. Let's get into it. So Zahir, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming Thanks. on. Thanks for having me on. So you're the founder of Levels.FYI. Can you tell us what exactly you guys do? Yeah, our mission at a high level is to help people make better career decisions. And the way that we tangibly do that is by collecting all types of data about companies. So salaries, benefits information, anything you'd like to know really about a company before joining. And we also help. So number one is arming them, arming people with data, but we also help people actually improve their situation at a company. And one of the ways we do that is we have a negotiation service. So we actually help people negotiate their offers uh, now as well. So was that negotiation service like part of the original idea when you were building this or did that just come about because you had to find uh, some sort of revenue model? Yeah, that's a good question. So it definitely was not part of 
the idea when we started. In fact, actually, the idea that when we started, it was very much like a side project. So I was actually working, at, I was in between jobs, actually. I was at LinkedIn, and then I was about to join Amazon. And in that transition, me and my, my now co-founder realized that a lot of people have the same questions around how to, how to level themselves correctly when they're joining a new company. Sure. What that means is, especially at the bigger companies, you have like a leveling system. So like L3, L4, you come in as a new grad, maybe as like L3, then you get promoted to an L4 and so on. Now every company calls it something different. So Microsoft, for example, has, I don't know, like 12 levels or something. And they start at, I think, 55. And then you get promoted to 56. Google starts at L3, you get promoted to L4. You know, LinkedIn starts as software engineer, then you get promoted to senior engineer. Point is basically that all of these call it something different. And so mm-hmm. if you're looking to switch companies and you want to make sure that you're kind of maintaining your status that you reached that one company, it's very hard, or at least it previously was very hard to compare which level is a correct level, right? And traditionally what would happen is a lot of people would actually get down leveled. So I wanted to make sure that like I had gotten promoted once at LinkedIn. I wanted to make sure that when I was joining Amazon that I would not get like demoted basically that would come in at the right second level. And so that that's kind of what we started with is just comparing those levels of different companies. And that's actually why the site is called levels.fii because we were just comparing levels. Eventually we realized that people actually want to collect like know about salaries as well and obviously that's a hot topic mm-hmm. so we started collecting that and it kind of just grew organically from there so yeah we we didn't have like a business plan or anything formal when we started it was very much like a, hey let's like let's fix this one problem and then it just kind of organically grew from there Mm. Doesn't Glassdoor already do exactly what you described? Partly, but no. So one, they don't have anything, any leveling type of comparisons. So that's completely big gap that they don't have. Second thing is they have compensation data, but it's actually quite inaccurate. And most people, especially in the tech industry, will tell you that it's inaccurate as well. And the reason for that, actually one of the biggest reasons is they, they don't take total compensation into account very well. And so especially at the tech companies, right, you'll know that a good chunk of your compensation is in the form of stocks or non-monetary compensation, right? Stocks or RSUs or maybe if you're a startup in the form of like options or something. And so when you're comparing compensation, especially at the big tech companies, most of your salaries will actually cap out at like 150, 160 per year. And so it's not really useful actually to compare salaries. Almost everyone's salary is going to be around the same in that, you know, 100 to 150, 160, maybe 180 to 200 range. The real kind of compensation is in the form of stocks. And that's where you get to, you know, 200, 300, 500K packages. And that's kind of our specialty or the niche that we carved out is within tech, especially, we realized that there was that information gap early on and we were one of the first and only sites to actually factor in total compensation right that's definitely in line with sort of my experience and like my family's experience and our friends experience it it seems that it's always a non-monetary compensation that ends up being the most opaque and not Mm -hmm. uh uh, sort of clear it's a little clear as mud and then and then people could potentially get screwed over in that particular case so that sounds like you're you guys are really helping there is that is that the case that non-monetary compensation is the most opaque compared to uh regular salary Yeah, generally it's the most opaque and it's also the hardest to value in some cases because like stocks, for example, you have the value that you got at the time when you joined the company. And then over the time, over time, like your stock might've gone up or down. Right. And so after two years, what's the value of those stocks? Like when you're looking to switch companies, are you going to look at the current value, which might have increased, especially in the last five to 10 years? Something interesting is that like part of the reason why software salaries have gone up so high is because the stock market has gone so high in the last five to 10 years, right? The bull market, right? Literally every year, 
um, especially at the major tech companies, you can expect five to 10% of stock growth. And if that's the case, and let's say I had a 200K stock package when I joined four years ago, now that 200K is now worth whatever, 250 or 270, 80K. Uh, and so when I'm looking to switch companies, I'm not going to take anything less than what I'm currently making, right? right? And therefore, other companies have to now match that new increased value. And so it's kind of like 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 a game, like, oh, like two years ago, now my stocks are worth more. And then the two, two years in the future, it's going to be worth even more. And so that way, the price keeps on increasing, right? And so that's, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's opaque in the sense it's hard to value. And it also leads to actually sometimes increases in, in value as well for at least for the employees. So it seems like one of the major challenges that benefits the employer rather than the employee is asymmetric knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So the employer knows how much everybody is getting paid. And honestly, these tech companies probably talk to each other. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas with employees, there's not some giant pool of data for them to have. Do you think that this is the cause of some of these kind of level issues? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. And when we started this, we had no idea like what was going on with companies and the information asymmetry, like we knew like, okay, yeah, they probably know more about salaries than us, but we didn't realize like what extent that actually happened. And so what we found out actually, and what's interesting is most companies will actually have access to these salary surveys. And there are companies whose entire job is like literally to collect salaries from companies. They'll anonymize that information, aggregate it, you know, generate statistics, and then sell it back to those same companies. And so there's surveys like Radford, Option Impact. There's a number of basically salary surveyors. And that's, that's the way they won't, you can't see like how much a specific company is paying because that would break kind of antitrust laws. And that's the reason why they, they anonymize that information. But if those laws weren't there, like who knows what would happen, right? And, but the re, like all of these companies are essentially sharing their data with some third-party entity which is going to aggregate, you know, and summarize that data and then sell it back to those companies. And so they know exactly like, okay, 95th percentile of the market. This is how much companies are paying. You know, this is how much companies are paying in this region, in this specific area for these levels. Literally when they give their data to this third party, it has everything, right? Level, years of experience, the candidate, the person. Sometimes it might have like what the skill is of that individual and so on. How much money do you think people are leaving on the table because of all that? That's a good question. I think I would answer that through the lens of our negotiation service. What we've seen is generally we're able to almost reliably negotiate between anywhere from like five to 15%. Wow. Uh, of a package fairly reliably almost on every offer and that's kind of expected right companies will they're not going to give you the highest offer out the gate generally right unless you're like an all-star candidate and so you can reliably negotiate around five to ten percent pretty easily without doing much right but if you actually push hard we've seen huge increases 10 20 um 30 40% right wow. uh, we had a package the other day that was uh, 400k and we negotiated it to close to 500K. What role was that? This was a designer, actually. I know that one of the major fan companies. And 100K increases is nothing small, right? I mean, that's a huge, huge increase. And what's interesting is this kind of ties back to the last discussion where level is what actually determines your pay range, right? And so 
we found the biggest increases typically correspond to if we're able to negotiate a level. And negotiating level is actually very difficult, but if you are able to negotiate the level, then you are able to negotiate a very high pay or a high pay increase, really. And, you know, a lot of it, a lot of the work that we do is, I mean, we're not doing magic. Like, there's only so much we have to deal with. Like, all we're doing really is crafting the narrative of the individual, of the person, in a better light for the company, right? Um, most people struggle with actually putting together their story, their resume, whatever you want to call it. They they struggle with actually pitching themselves in the best possible light and pitching themselves in a way that the employer would actually understand or desire, right? Every company has their set of values or their set of like ideals. So for example, I know at Amazon, they have their leadership principles, right? You know, customer obsession, you know, disagree, but commit or whatever, right? All of these different leadership principles. And so if you can craft your personal narrative in a way that fits the mold of the company as best as possible, then it's easier for um, whoever's making the hiring decision at a company to actually... Um, you're doing their work for them, right? You're making it easy for them to promote you or get you to the next level or, you know, make that hiring call that, hey, this guy is going to be a good fit for my company. So here you just gave away your paid service for free on our podcast. <laughs> you know, it's funny, like we were we were thinking of, okay, like, should we put out like blog material, things like that, right? Because it's mm -hmm. good, like SEO, it's good advertising. And what we realized is like, hey, there's already tons of blogs out there that like say the same exact stuff that we're saying. So like, yeah, we can say everything, all of our strategies, we can put in a blog post out there for everyone to read. But it like, and there are actually blog posts out there that pretty much have all the, the it's not magic, right? It's like all the strategies are the same for the most part. It's what people struggle with is the execution. And that's, that's kind of what people are paying for. So have you found that under leveling and being on the lower band end of compensation is particularly an issue for underrepresented groups in tech? Oh yeah, absolutely. And we see this, we see this all the time with just like, I mean, it's obviously anecdotal because it's whatever the view that we have of people purchasing our service, but based on what we've seen that, that certainly underrepresented groups typically are less confident when they're negotiating. A lot of times the question that we'll get is like, are you sure I should ask this much? Like, is it, like, that seems a bit high. Um, like, I don't know if I even want to negotiate anymore. You know, it's a pretty good offer. Like, you know, I'm okay with this offer. Like, I don't, you know, like this is good enough for me, right? A lot of that, right? They feel almost guilty negotiating. And so a lot of actually another good chunk of what we do is just coaching people to give them instilling confidence that, hey, no, like you absolutely should negotiate. This is the range you have. You're not falling at the top of that range. You're in the middle over here or maybe you're at the bottom end. Like you should ask for more. Right. You're worth this much. If you find another if you have another competing offer, like you can actually see that like we, we can get both of them up as well. Right. And a lot of it's just like instilling confidence is another huge part of what we do. And it's it's not even negotiation. It's just general coaching, right? And that's why we call our, our team like coaches, right? They're whatever you want to call it. It's like, it's, we're just not, we're not just negotiation coaches. It's actually almost like a career coach or like a, in some ways, there's a little bit of like life coachingness that comes out in it as well. That's great. Awesome. So yeah, who would you say are your major users? Like, do you know what the personas of the people who use your product are? Levels as a whole, we're predominantly US-based right now, predominantly tech industry, and predominantly at the tech epicenters. So, you know, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, etc., all of the major tech epicenters. We've started 
to expand beyond that quite a bit. So both internationally and even within the U.S. to different regions and different industries as well. But that said, I would say our our strongest or our core demographic is those kind of the the epicenter of those three, right? Tech, tech epicenters, and uh, U.S. based. So that's it's it's really kind of focused within the tech market. Though we are certainly trying to expand to to broader than that. If you had to describe the average user of your negotiation side of your business, who who is that person? Is it, is it a designer like you were just describing, or uh, maybe it's uh, an engineer? Yeah, it's mostly engineers. Though we do see like, and part of this is also just statistics, right? There are more. <clears throat> engineers than designers. So for every 10 engineers, there's maybe one or two designers or something like that, right? So we like, and it actually reflects in the companies as well. It's interesting that we get a ton of Amazon negotiations. Why? Not because people at Amazon want to negotiate more. It's because Amazon's hiring like 100,000 people a year. And so naturally we're going to get more customers in that direction. But yeah, the average persona is probably around, I would say they're kind of mid, mid-level in their career. So maybe around like, anywhere from two to 10 years of experience. And so they're not super senior, usually at the higher, very senior candidates kind of know the routine on negotiations. They maybe also switch companies much less, whereas, you know, folks that are younger in their careers are typically tend to switch companies a bit more. And so, yeah, we see that a lot and predominantly engineers, I would say as well. So to shift gears a little bit, I don't know if you guys heard about Google's events, the news stories on unionizing. So Mm. over the last couple of years, there have been some employees at Google who wanted to unionize for a variety of reasons. Part of it was to protest some of the projects that Google was working on with like border control and ICE and the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. And Google came back hard. They hired many of the employees associated with this and they hired a firm that is specialized in union busting. So, mm-hmm. you know, unionizing is, it seems like a very, like a kind of a, it's a very unusual idea for white collar jobs. It's mm-hmm. much more common for blue collars. So how do you feel about people in software, people in tech unionizing? Do you think that benefits uh, benefits them or what do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think whenever you, mo- mo- most of the power at between companies and employees is in the hands of the employer. And so whenever you, start to bring more power in the hands of employees i think that's generally a good move because that helps that helps equalize kind of the dynamics right and generally it leads to a better outcome for the employees and so even things like salary transparency what we're doing at levels right you can think of it that we're we're reducing the discrepancy of power between employers and employees and i think unionizing is one another avenue for doing that as well. And so generally, I do think it's it can lead to good effects for employees. And I've seen, I've read a lot of the discussions around it, about it as well. And a lot of people say that, hey, like, what are you fighting about? You're already making 100, 200K, however many K a year. Like, you're already being paid, like, amazing. Why do you need a union? Like, why are you crying about, you know, like whatever improper pay or, or this or that. And I guess my response to that would be, you know, just, just because you may be better off than others, if there's injustice or if there is something not right happening, you should always try to counter that, right? There's no like relative, like, yes, there may be, you know, bad is bad, regardless of how it's happening, the scale of it's happening, and, you know, people should always try to counteract that, right? Why does it matter that, like, yes, these are mostly privileged people that are, you know, still trying to fix their situation? At the end of the day, 
if a company like Google is able to fix that dynamic or the improper things that are taking place, whether it's sexual harassment or racial uh, like profiling, things like that, it benefits the broader ecosystem because, you know, that's one company amongst many. And, you know, once you want to start that wave basically of, of equality, right? And so the more companies that fall in line into that, it really benefits everyone, right? So, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. I think it's like I've seen a lot of the reaction to the unionization has actually been in some ways, at least for people like that are not in the tech industry, just from my anecdotal reading has been like kind of negative of like, okay, these are very privileged people. Like, why are they even unionizing? Right. And so I just, I guess I just wanted to put my thoughts around that because I felt like that was unfair or or not right in some ways. Right. Do you think it's going to happen? Think what? Like the union? Like there's going to be, there's going to be like a fang union for the employer side and employee side. You know, that's, that's interesting. Like, although I think it's, it's, probably like a good it, it, it's a good idea and it could lead to good outcomes i'm a bit doubtful that it will actually transpire and part of it is because again for the same reason like folks are fairly comfortable you know if you're getting paid like a lot of money like most people are going to be like hey like yeah there's probably some issues but i'm getting paid a lot like i you know i don't want to give up my job if you're working at one of these big tech companies like you realize that okay how much the the differences between how much a big tech company is paying versus a lot of the other companies, right? You realize that you're in a pretty comfortable position. And so I can see that most people are just going to be like, hey, like, yeah, I know that's bad, but like, I'm not willing to risk my career for for something like that, right? Yeah, I, I think another thing which might be kind of interesting is what if the cause of these unions is not necessarily compensation, but rather like, what is the impact of the company you're working on? Um, mm-hmm. in the world, right? I mean, yeah, now we're yeah. starting to see these maybe negative effects on democracy and society from these yeah. like massive tech companies. And so if employees use their collective power to demand change, to demand accountability, I think that would be kind of interesting. So what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, and we already see some of that, right? Facebook, for example, like pays quite a lot. And part of the reason why, I mean, I would hypothesize why they pay a lot is because not everyone's willing to work there. I, a lot of people actually don't choose, and just personally amongst my friends group, I actually know a number of people that choose not to work at Facebook, even though they could, because mm-hmm. of their policies and because of their stance on certain things. And, you know, that's that's a personal decision. That's a personal thing. And I think, the like, I'm sure for, for every company, right, there are a certain group of people that will not work for that company because of some stance that they took. And we've seen this at, at many companies, right? At Amazon just last year or maybe a couple of months ago, there was a very senior level engineer principal or level engineer that actually resigned that because he didn't actually like the policies of why Amazon, how Amazon was treating their warehouse workers, right? And so I would say that people are actually already voting with their feet of leaving or not working at some tech companies, right? It's not common, I would say. I don't think it's hugely common. And I mean, there's so much, there's so many engineers and there's so many people, I don't know how big of a difference it makes. I'm sure it makes some sort of difference, but it's just, you know, there's, the world is massive. There's tons of people willing to stand in your shoes if you're not willing to stand in them. Right. I suspect, though, that the reason, you know, the one person who's willing to leave because they don't, because they are really concerned about the, about how Amazon treats its warehouse workers, there probably would be a lot more if they all agreed, if they all said, like, okay, we're going to take collective action against this, rather than one person having to just be the flag bearer, you know, being the martyr. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I I don't know, like, like, I'm not sure how that will 
play out. But like I agree, like as as a union or as a collective, you have much better bargaining power, right? And so the question is, are people willing to participate in that? And frankly, like I don't know, like are people like my hunch or my intuition is that like you know people are fairly comfortable, right? And it's the same reason why like a lot of like social justice causes, right? There's there's tons of injustice going on in the world, right? Not just that. Like this, this is maybe like a minor or a relatively smaller type thing, but like there's tons of things going on around the world. You don't see everyone kind of taking arms and being like, "Hey, that's wrong, right?" Oh, like, right. "Hey, let's do something about this." Right. And I would imagine, just like for every other injustice, there's only a small fraction of people that actually care. In the same way, there's only a small fraction of people that will actually care in this scenario or care enough to do something, right? I think a,、mm. a lot of people care, but fewer people care to actually do something, right? And it takes like a major trigger, or it takes a major event or something big to actually spark people into to move from that people that care. To people that care and will take action, camp, right? And like for every civil rights issue type in the last whatever years, like there's always been one major like trigger or what something、right. that's kind of sparked like a movement or sparked some actual tangible powerful change, right? And so in the same way, I would say like like I don't know what that spark is yet. Maybe it's happened. Maybe it hasn't. But I would say something like that is needed to actually bring significant change. In a future episode, we can bring on a hiring manager from one of these companies and、uh, get the get the other point of view. But I, I I have been thinking about something that I you know I've actually never said out loud. It's sort of a theory of mine, which is not even a theory, like a comparison that the way this this dynamic works between software engineers and these humongous tech companies is not. Dissimilar to how basketball players operate in the NBA. So, in the case of the NBA, you have these basketball players who 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 are effectively doing the majority of the work, right?、And、the majority of the revenue bringing is because of because of these players. They create this product, they play this game. This game is then taken and then sold. The jerseys are sold, and so there's recurring revenue that occurs. Much longer after this product has been created, so very similar to like software engineers, you create the software, which is then taken and sold. In both cases, the number one cost base. Is the talent, and it's the most important crux of the business. Without the talent, you cannot operate. And it's interesting that the NBA, you do have a union. The NBA is unionized, and it is, I guess, white collar. I don't know if you'd consider that white collar, but it's definitely white collar. They're getting paid millions and millions. Millions, yeah. And the way that CBA works, the collective bargaining agreement, which they operate under, is the players are entitled to fifty percent. Of total revenues that the league makes, so the revenues can change year over year, which we've seen because during COVID they lost a lot of money. So players are expecting lower salaries going and going going forward. And so similarly, if we, I was just thinking, if we had something similar, how would it? How would the union even work in Fang? I think it would operate somewhere like that. You, you would revenue rather than off of. Like a, arbitrary numbers, yeah. Exactly. You, you people wouldn't be like, oh, this guy's getting paid three hundred there for doing the same job as me. So maybe I'm being two hundred right now. Maybe I should pay two fifty or two seventy five just to get me closer. It'd be more like, well, in reality, I'm actually worth. I'm really worth like five hundred, and we're both getting shortchanged. So that'd be that'd be an interesting thing to look at, and maybe levels at some point will have enough data to even try and break down the revenue models and things like that, and see who's、yeah. really bringing in the the majority of the revenue, which which I think would be super interesting. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I didn't realize that they had. Well, I think I've heard of like the union for basketball players, but I didn't. I didn't realize like the 
the exact percentage that it was like 50% and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's 50% of everything. So it's, it's everything from the NBA 2K, the money they make on the oh, 2K wow. game, uh, jerseys, international. Now now it's NBA Top Shot, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, where they're selling the digital. So the players are also getting 50% of that, uh, the income mm-hmm. that the league, is, the league is generating from that. Super interesting. We wow. can move on though. Yeah, for sure. So what other asymmetric knowledge is there beyond compensation or that benefits companies rather than software engineers? That's a good question. I think like it's really on all, it's really on everything that between that relationship, right? Like from, from salaries to levels to, to even if you think about HR, right, as a function, HR as a function typically is on the side of the employers, right? A lot of people think that, oh, like, let me go to talk to HR about this. And there's some issue that happens at work. They go talk to HR. HR is hired and paid by the company. And they are, you know, generally going to be on the side of the employer, right? And we've seen this play out time and time again, right? Uh, Google or you name it, right? And so I think just a relationship of that dynamic, structurally, you're always going to have some sort of asymmetry between the employer and the employee, right? They're the ones that are paying the money. They're the ones in charge. The employee is coming with a need and their employer is satisfying that need. Now, obviously, the employer has a need as well to get some work done. But the question is, like, for every person, again, right, there's, I'm sure there's 10 more people willing to stand in your shoes that in that can replace you, right? And it's not always the case, but like generally, I think employers always have that kind of power dynamic where they are in more of a position of power. And so really for anything, I would say there is that kind of level of asymmetry in knowledge on, on every aspect, level, salaries, benefits, HR, you name it. It seems like the problem of asymmetric knowledge would be an issue across many industries. Do you guys have any plans to expand beyond software? Yeah, yeah, we we've certainly expanded actually. So we we have expanded to like a little bit of like banking, finance. We've expanded to other sectors beyond just tech. It, it is it's a bit more of a slower process. I think we were able to carve out this niche in tech pretty quickly and like I think better just because we are from the tech industry. So I know, for example, like if I need to get levels, the leveling structure at like Google, I can just call one of my friends and be like, hey, like what does Google's leveling structure look like, right? And so we were able to bootstrap that very fast because of that. And so now I think the more that we're able to solidify our tech ecosystem of data, the more that it'll be easier also to branch into other areas because, you know, once we're known very well for one use case, I think people naturally from other industries or other areas will start to look at the site. And when they stumble on the site, they'll see that, hey, oh, there's like my industry is also listed on here. Let me check out the data and potentially contribute as well. So we actually have a bunch of industries and a bunch of different roles listed. Have we done a good job of actually capturing all that data? No, but I think as we grow, hopefully the hope is that we actually do a better job there. Cool. So I was actually chatting with your co-founder earlier this week. And Um, yeah, the story of how you guys started the company is quite interesting. So you guys were not originally making a product for compensation. You were just doing pure leveling systems, right? Yep. Yeah. So can you kind of tell me the journey of how you guys found this sort of product market fit and when you decided to pull the trigger on, on leaving Amazon and I mean, take us through the journey. Yeah, yeah. So let's see. We started about like around that transition time between when I was between LinkedIn and in Amazon. And like I met Zahir around that time too. And it's funny, like the way that we met was because like our name our names are actually very similar, right? So his name is Zahir. 
my name is Zahir. The letters look very, very similar. There's probably like four letters of difference or something. And the reason why we met is a mutual friend had introduced us because, hey, like your guys' names are very similar and you guys both like <laughs> hacking on stuff and working on side projects. Like you guys should talk. I'm like, all right, like, yeah, <laughs> sure. So we met a couple times and literally on maybe like the second or third time that we met, we're like, hey, like we identified this kind of problem just based on you know, we were looking at different forums. I was kind of going through the same problem myself. Zahir was starting, just starting to look at the industry. And, and you know, we stumbled upon this and decided to solve that, just that one thing. And again, very much a side project. We just did it on the weekends, launched it up, threw it up, started marketing it, advertising it. And it started picking up, you know, it just, it took a while, but it, it started, you know, naturally within a couple of months, we started seeing people come to the site every day, right? And like our chart basically looks like very slow initially. And then you start to get that inflection point right just like i mean that's like a typical like everyone would love to see that kind of chart of like yeah. like uh what do you call it? exponential type growth right but it, that's right. really what it looked like it was very slow initially took a while took a while and then it started really going up right and when did you guys hit product market fit i would say you know it's, it's a hard question for me to answer like i almost want to say that we hit it like pretty early on like people love the product and people started sharing the product right away right i think about like when i think of product product market fit one of the things i think about is like nps score right i don't know if you're familiar with it but it's like net promoter score and what the scale it's basically a scale of like one through ten or something and it's how the question is how willing are you to share this product with someone else right and i think we saw right away that people were willing to share the product with other people so initially what would happen is we would be like answering questions on people like we had this level in comparison and we would answer the question someone would ask like hey what is a level 65 at microsoft compared to at facebook and then we'd go on there and we'd be like hey it is this level go check out this website to see the comparison so we did that for maybe a month or two and then after that what we noticed is other people were starting to link to the site and we're like oh great like we didn't we didn't answer that question it's like hey did you answer that question there no i didn't answer that like that must have been someone else and we're like oh cool that's awesome like other people are picking it up right and from that we realized okay like there's there's a real problem people are actually sharing this there's a real need to this right and start people started sharing it right away very organically and so you know, going back to product market fit, I, I would say that we kind of found, at least for that segment of things, pretty early on. Now, we've organically kind of grown the product over time, right? And for each of those instances, I would say that we found product market fit, again, for that product evolution fairly quickly because it was a reaction to what users were asking us already, right? In some ways, we've taken a very lazy approach to uh, product vision where people would request like oh like you know what if what are the salary bands at each of these companies and we'd be like hey that's a good question maybe we should start collecting salaries right or maybe what are the benefits at these companies that's a great question let's start collecting benefits hey like i have all this great data that you guys have shared but like how do i actually negotiate a higher package that's a great question why don't we start a service to actually help you negotiate more money right and so We've been very reactive to all of these these different things. And that's really how we've, the growth of the company has really just been responding to customer feedback, how, keeping a kind of close ear to the ground of what's going on. And I think I, I left Amazon after three years. So that means the, the product naturally was about three years old at that point. So we were around for quite a while before I actually left. And at that point we had actually, we already had some revenue. We were already profitable because 
partly because our costs are so low. It's just a website. And we had pretty good traction already. We had, you know, tens of thousands of users per month. And I left because I was like, hey, like if we want to grow this more, if we want this to grow even bigger, I think naturally, like I was already spending a lot of time actually like just fixing bugs or like responding to customer feedback, things like that. And I'm like, like my brain was getting too split. Like I, I didn't have any time at all. Just nights and weekends were going towards levels. The daytime I was at Amazon. So like I was just kind of losing my mind. And I was like, you know, what? I need to just focus on, I need to focus on one. And that's, that's really kind of like, that was like the breaking point of me being like, okay, like I cannot keep working at Amazon and do justice to levels, right? Like I, I, if I kept working at Amazon, like one of them would have suffered. Whereas in the past it was like, hey, like I could do both, right? I wasn't like taking too much of a time commitment. And that that was kind of the switch for me to be like, okay, I gotta, I gotta leave. The one interesting thing that also happened was I was like sitting, I was having lunch at Amazon one day, like just in the, we had like this outdoor like patio area. And I think I was having a late lunch, so I was just sitting alone. And like I overheard this like conversation like behind me. Someone was asking about like salaries and something. And then another person was like, Hey, you should check out levels. And I'm sitting there like wow. eating my lunch. I'm like, like, what? What did I just hear? <laughs> like, like I'm like, hey, I made levels. Like, <laughs> like that's me. That's my site. Like, and like at that point, I was just like, oh dang, like I should be doing this like full time. Like, there's people that are referencing us, and it, it kind of like you know, it takes a while for it to hit, like, like, oh, like, you are a thing, like, this is real, like, you know, like, people are referencing it. Because we had grown so slowly, and so, like, organically, it never felt like, we never kind of jumped ship, and we're like, hey, we're starting a company, like, let's go raise money, or let's go, like, form our corporation, things like that. It wasn't like that, right? It was just very much, hey, let's do this, let's iterate, let's, like, it was very slow, casual process. And so, like it took a while for me to kind of like internalize that we were actually like a company. We were actually like a thing now. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I left, it's been a bit more than a year now and it's been, it's been great so far. Has COVID helped you guys or hurt you guys? Initially it hurt. So I remember like last year, just around this time, actually, literally, I think March 11th was the day, maybe March 13th, maybe it's when we saw like, that was when I think the lockdown started or something. And literally traffic just like since then, right? And hiring slowed down, everything slowed down. That's when things were getting shuttered. And like we saw traffic just kind of like come down and then it slowly grew, grew, grew. And, you know, late, it it wasn't until like several months later when we kind of were back to the same place and actually overtook all of that. So it hurt initially, but I'm... I'm actually pretty optimistic that this next year we're actually going to see a lot of growth and part of it's, you know, companies are going to be playing catch up right now to now that the economy is going to start to open up, business is going to start booming, hopefully. Right. And we'll start to see that companies are expand more and more. And that comes with hiring, obviously. So. Right. Has, um, and I think, I think, I mean, I'm curious, I'm sure a lot of people are curious, how are you guys funding all this? Do you guys have VC funding? We're, we're fully bootstrapped. So, you know, it, I think it helped that, like we started a side project and by the time we both left, Zahir actually start, left full-time. He joined Levels. He started at Levels full-time a couple months before I did. He was working on another startup before that. But by the time that we both started full-time, we were already making some money. And so because of that, we were able to to bootstrap it and you know our profits were, our costs were lower than uh, the money we were bringing in. And so we, we had some profits. Nice. You guys aren't uh, eating ramen and beans, though. 
Yeah, yeah. Not it, we're we're fairly at this point now. We we've gone to a good level of like profitability. So yeah, okay. Nutritious food is a pretty important. nutritious, uh, nutritious yeah. level, profitable. Good, good. That should be the real real growth rate indicator for startups. Is what type of yeah. what's the, what's what the type diet? of food are you eating? Yeah, yeah. That's that's really interesting. I think you know, having just like heard a lot of startup stories in the valley, and just listening to other podcasts and 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 these these sort of like huge periodicals, these journals will write about entrepreneurs. It always seems there comes a point where the entrepreneur is left with this decision where they need a lot of money in a really short amount of time. I don't know if you guys will ever get to this point where maybe you need like a million dollars the next day to pursue some opportunity or something, something. If that came up, how would you find something like that? Will yeah, that will I mean, something I've, like that come up? I, I suspect so, right? If we want to grow at a rapid clip, I mean, that's why people raise money, right? When they want to grow very fast and they don't have the capital to to actually do that and and it's honestly like a question that we ask ourselves like there are a lot of product uh, features and things that we want to add and we don't have the time we don't have the hands for it right now and so you know do we want to raise money that's that's a good question i think we ask ourselves that all the time really and you know so far we've been able to grow just based on our profits alone but there probably will come a point where we're going to be like hey like you know we we need to go faster or we need we need more help and that at that point we would probably go about raising money and i think a lot of people like to raise money just because like hey like we raise around right it's a nice like status symbol it's a nice like it almost gives like you confirmation that hey like what i'm working on is is valuable right and like i mean i think we realized early on that and partly because of the way that we started very organic and all of that that we like we didn't want to just chase vc funding just for the sake of it right and because of the way that we started it never was a question that like like it wasn't like we set out to start necessarily a company initially right and so because of that that question was it was it was delayed it never came up as like a forceful hey like should we raise money yet or not it was kind of like hey we're just building a product and eventually we had to incorporate and things just to naturally protect our legal liability but in there was never this one point where we're like hey like yes we we have to raise money or things like that and so it's a good question i don't know when or if we will but it's certainly something we think of cool so just to kind of wrap things up here, the, the podcast is called What Can You Tell Me About Software? So let's get a little techy now. What is your mm-hmm. tech stack? Tech stack? You'd be surprised. We're actually a static site still. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> no React. So no React. You know, we're using jQuery. We're using Bootstrap, Twitter, Bootstrap, or it used to be Twitter. We don't have any fancy tools. We just literally use JS, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, raw JavaScript, HTML, CSS, jQuery, you know, it's you know, people would say, oh, it's like an old, like you're not using React, you're not using whatever the hot new thing is. But I mean, no. like I, I didn't know React, my partner didn't know React really well at the time. And, you know, we, we built it using regular tools and nice. it worked just fine and solved customers' issues. So like why, why need, why throw like a React like beast at it if, if we can get by fine with simpler tools? Right. Do you guys have any plans, any features that would require uh, sort of like the Mern stack or anything more complicated? Yeah, so we're, we are starting to move towards that now. Initially, we didn't even have like an API and things. So now we are actually building like a server API. And at some point, you will hit that level where you have to move towards those things. Even prior to this, we did have like some Lambda functions that would process some of our data, but we were st- still static for the most part, right? But now we are starting to move, like we didn't have a server for whatever, two, three years. And now we're starting to put kind of those things in place. But I would say for most people, I think like you don't need 
fancy technology to get started, right? At the end of the day, your customers don't care. And I think people hear that all the time, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really hit them hard. And like, you know, they'll, they'll start to like create software or things with whatever the fanciest new tool is, but really you don't need that. Right. I think that's great advice. I can definitely tell you like from the software engineer's perspective, there is sort of like, you know, like we're craftsmen, you know, uh, there's like some purity yeah. in that. But at the end of the day, you're selling a product. It's like yeah. commerce, not art. So yeah. just make something great, you know? Yeah, exactly. All right. So just to our final question that we love to wrap things up with is what do you think is the best piece of software ever built either of all time or in recent memory? That's interesting. I was thinking about this and at least in recent memory, it might be, an, I don't know if it's a interesting answer, but I think Excel. Microsoft Excel. And the reason why I say that is because you'd be surprised how much of the world runs on Excel, how much people rely on it for as a database, as a, as, you know, as for creating applications, basic applications with VBA script and things. And I didn't, I don't think I fully grasped this until, until recently. So my wife actually works in as like as an energy engineer works for like an East Coast company they're not techie at all but they do like insane excel programming like the, they have formulas that are like like a paragraph long and like some of the code that they do in excel is just insane and like you know people talk about oh like we have to teach people programming and things like that everyone should know how to code people have been coding in excel for a long time and they don't even realize that they're coding formulas is coding right if you can have a formula with if this, that, whatever, right? And you can have in Excel, right? There's tons of powerful features too that people use that and they don't even realize that they're coding like VBA scripts and stuff, right? And so I think Excel is one of those things that I don't think it gets enough credit for what it's doing, like like it's, it's place in the world of like how much people rely on it and how much people have adapted their thinking models and how much people have adapted their skills to actually code within it. And they don't even actually realize that they're coding half the time. They just think they're putting formulas together. And so it's, it's something that's super, super intuitive for people to do. Like it's intuitive for the most simple use case and it's intuitive for super complex use cases. Right. Where I've seen like literally like some of the spreadsheets I look at, like I've seen at my wife's workplaces, like insane, like, you know, like 200, like, like character, 300 character, like formulas and like functions and things like that. And like, she doesn't know how to program, program in the technical sense of the term. Right. But she's able to put together these like for insane formulas and other people at her company that have never taken a programming class are as well. Right. And so, yeah, I think I would say Excel just because of, of the sheer like power and flexibility and versatility that it has. Yeah, you know, this is, this is super interesting and it's very timely because me and Faraz have talked about this pretty, pretty, we've, we've talked it through and my whole take on this is I'm totally with you. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Excel. My background is like finance accounting. And so Excel ends up being like our bread and butter for basically every every aspect of the job. And then, and you're right. I mean, I, th- I think I can, we can refer to it as like a no code tool. I know you're saying like you are coding on it, but maybe it falls yeah. under that category of like no code. Yep. And it's the best use case for no code. It's the best uh, evidence that no code works. It's been around for 20 years. It's it's uh, changed businesses. Entire entire SaaS companies that are being built right now are trying to disrupt one particular use case of Excel. Not yep. even like Excel, but just the one thing that it's used for. If you look at like the average small size businesses in America, their entire financial like accounting infrastructure is built on Excel in most cases. So wow. 
the, the, the fact that, yeah, ex- exactly what you were saying, which is, you know, it can be, it can be used at this energy engineering, it can be used at this sort of, this, this really, really more sophisticated sort of business. And it can be used at a, at a gas station business. It, it really tells you like the, the power of it, I think. Anyway, I think it's, I think that's a great answer and probably. You're, uh, yeah, I think you're going to be Vasan's favorite guest just because you said Excel. <laughs> no, no, for, for other reasons. Cause one day I might need his, uh, need his website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you graduate, when you graduate, he's going to look up uh, levels of FY to see yeah. how much podcast hosts make yeah, yeah. oh yeah that's right we'll have to add um, a new category for that we're gonna have, we'll, we'll verify our information by providing you with yeah cash receipts <laughs> um, anyway uh zahir it's been wonderful i i i learned a lot yeah th- thank you so much for joining us really really it was great yeah appreciate it Thanks for listening, guys. That's our episode for this week. Make sure you leave a comment, tell your friends about us, review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts, and we'll see you for another episode.